0: Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, I'm joined by Negan Sinclair, an award-winning Indigenous writer, journalist and academic. While commentating nationally on CBC and winning awards like the Peace Educator of the Year from Georgetown University in Washington, DC, Negan continues to make time to guide leaders in K-12 school districts to provide better teaching and learning for our Indigenous and non-Indigenous students. This is an opportunity to hear his poignant and sometimes heartbreaking reflections. Hi there and welcome. Nigan, I am so thrilled to have you here on the Knowledge Hook podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Bonjour. Thanks for having me.
0: Nigan, you are incredibly well known in Canada. You appear regularly on CBC, uh, shows like Power and Politics and The Current and uh, all sorts of different places in Canada. But there may be some people out there, either in Canada or beyond, that don't know you. So tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: So I'm Anishinaabe, which is another name for our people, is uh, Ojibwe or Chippewa, or sometimes Bungie or Soto. And uh, so I'm Anishinaabe. I'm from a place called Saint Peter's Indian Settlement, which is just north of Winnipeg. It's now called Pegwas First Nation, and we are we are relocated back in uh, 1907. And so uh, some of my families, uh, some of them, well my family in particular, stayed behind. So. Uh, some of the family stayed behind in our original territories. And so that's where I come from. I grew up there and, um, I do lots of different things. I'm a former school teacher. I taught grade 9 through 12 drama, English and native studies at uh, Ecole Kelvin High School here here in Winnipeg where I live now. In fact, I live in the neighborhood where Kelvin is. My daughter goes to Kelvin now. And uh yeah, and I uh you know, gave up the career of uh, being a teacher to uh for the most part because I couldn't handle the paperwork and the demands and all the different dramas that high school teachers tend to go through. And then I, uh, I gave it up and went back to school and uh, got my uh, master's degree and my PhD and eventually was hired right here at the University of Manitoba, uh, living in the same community or working in the same community where I live and where I grew up. And uh, I'm now a professor at the University of Manitoba. I'm the acting head of the Department of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. I'm a full professor. And I do lots of different things in the community. So you've already mentioned my work with CBC, but I'm also a columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press. And I write a biweekly column. People can uh, pay 27 cents and get one of my columns every week or so. And uh, I also um, do work right here at the Forks, which is a historical site right here in the city, uh, doing curation and overseeing uh, the politics and the art in the uh, downtown core of Winnipeg and what was uh, previously known as Nestawea, a 3,000 to 5,000 person permanent city in downtown Winnipeg, which now the city of Winnipeg is built on top of. And I also do work with the Royal Aviation Museum of Western Canada. I'm the Indigenous curator over there. And then I also do work with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, the football team. I'm the director of Indigenous relations over there. And uh, if you wonder how can I be doing all of these jobs, it's because I'm single.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Nigon, that was that. I'm sure there were a lot of people on the call right now thinking, wow, how does he do that?
1: Well, being... Uh, you know, being a single guy and uh, having a 16-year-old is pretty much, uh, my life is very full.
0: I certainly understand. I had a 16-year-old daughter at one time, and I know how full that is. Nigon you know, an incredible story. And, um I, you know, the comment that you made about the incredible demands of teachers, I'm sure there's lots of teachers listening that are agreeing 100% with you. And although... I'm sure your students really miss you. You know, we're really happy that you moved on and did some other things because, you know, you have become one of the prominent Aboriginal thought leaders in Canada and are really helping to get the stories out there so that not just Indigenous communities get an opportunity to hear their voice reflected, but non-Indigenous, like myself, have an opportunity to learn from you.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I work a lot in mainstream circles now, so... I grew up surrounded by Indigenous peoples. I still go to ceremonies four times a year, although it's been a little interrupted with the pandemic. And in fact, I'm going to ceremonies next week. But nowadays, I work in a lot of mainstream institutions. I work at the Winnipeg Free Press. I do a lot of TV shows on mainstream television with CBC. And then, of course, uh, um, the fact that I work at a university, the University of Manitoba, is... uh, You know, just in my intro classes, about three quarters of the class are non Indigenous people. So I spend a lot of time uh, teaching and educating in that direction.
0: It is so important, you've done that work. And, um, you know, I think what we have learned as Canadians over the last couple of decades is how important it is for all of us to be hearing your voices. How did you find your voice? you know you you came from a first nations community and uh you know moved into to Winnipeg i my both my parents were born in Winnipeg and i grew up in Thunder Bay so I, I certainly know the the area how did you come to be from that child that was you know on first nations and then into the city and to a point where you found your voice
1: well they say once a manitoban or winnipegger uh you never you never it never leaves you, so it's nice to hear that you're still identifying with your Winnipeg roots. True um, uh, You know, I grew up like everybody else, and you know, I didn't really come from a First Nations community. I came from a removed one, a, a community in which we had been forcibly removed off the land in 1907. Uh, my father grew up in our territory, literally in our traditional homelands that we had been forced off by gunpoint by the RCMP, by the government of Canada, by the government of Manitoba, the town of Selkirk. And our land was stolen and given to farmers uh, that were then, you know, took over and plowed our, our homes, bulldozed our homes, got rid of our homes and, and uh, got rid of all of our history in that area. All that's left is a church and a cemetery from our original community. But I grew up right there, you know, and I grew up in that history and I grew up surrounded by, um, ethnic cleansing, you know, in any other country in the world that would have been called ethnic cleansing, but, uh, in Manitoba, we call that progress removing Indians off the land and sending them up to territories that are unsuitable to live and frequently flooded, and uh, you know that's where Peguis First Nation is now. And so, you know, my family worked very, very hard for many, many, many years rebuilding their lives. Uh, my grandfather built their home on our traditional territory from scratch, literally from. Uh, the nails and boards that he put together to make a two-story house just by himself, with you know other people that helped him, and and my great grandfather was a remarkable, remarkable carpenter, and so. I, you know, I grew up not aware of that history. I never knew, I never learned about that history until I was in university. Till I, you know, I was the inheritor of ethnic cleansing, but uh, no one ever talked about that story. I had heard sort of whispers, talk people talking about the the word Saint Peter's. And every year, my family goes and has a picnic at the site of our former community. We literally go and reoccupy our home once a year, and we always do it on Canada Day. So it's it's fairly ironic that we go back. We reestablish ourselves in our home. But, you know, no one ever talked to me about why we did that or or what was the history of our community had, who had been removed. And you know, it was only when I read books and I went to university that I studied and I realized that I was the inheritor of an incredible genocide and that my family uh, were brilliant, strong, resilient people who succeeded in the worst obstacles possible to be kicked out of your home and start from scratch. And so, um, it was when I began to realize that. And then on top of that, I, I also grew up in the time period of Oka and Elijah Harper No in 1990. I was 14 years old when that happened. And so I got to see what it was like to be a First Nations person in Canada and have suddenly all of these people turn to me and say, why are you so angry all the time? These are just friends of mine and teachers that literally the day before treated me one way and then the next day treated me another upon seeing the work that you know indigenous peoples were bravely doing to fight against oppression and the forced theft of their territories and you know the fact that Elijah Harper just refused to ratify the constitution and and I didn't even know why he was doing it at the time and it took me a long time to figure out why he was doing that and what was that why was that so important and so those two elements you know realizing that I came from ethnic cleansing were realizing that that I was part of an incredible movement from my teens onwards and uh, I got angry for a very long period of time I was angry from probably mid-1990s to mid-2000s and just really angry and you know one of my only solaces was being a teacher and I was a drama teacher so I didn't really have to talk politics in those days I I could just have fun with playing improv games with kids and monologues and doing you know just just seeing joy Mm -hmm. and I saw the Power of education. I saw the power of education to change lives and to give opportunities for those in all different walks of life. And you know, I also was the very first teacher in the school where I taught and in the neighborhood that I taught, in the section of Winnipeg that I taught. I was the very first teacher in literally one quarter of Winnipeg, which is remarkable considering Winnipeg is the largest urban indigenous community in the country. So you know, that, made, that put me in a very interesting position of having to be the Indigenous face for a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. And that gave me an opportunity to see the power of speaking, the power of peace and education, and then most importantly, the power of uh, ideas or what, you know, like reason dialogue. And uh, that's when I realized that I had a different calling and, and I began to write and I began to uh, speak more openly and I began to uh, uh, listen to my uncles and my parents and my uh my aunties who all told me that I had uh, a different calling in my life and uh they did that by giving me this name Negon Negon Wayudum is the full version it means the sound of the future or the sound of uh, in the front and uh this name that I've been given is kind of a call to me to uh, to speak to speak about, uh, who we are as a people and to speak in some terms, the, the, uh, front of the building when maybe sometimes that, that is not welcome or not interested or not, not, you know, the first time in a room and, or most importantly, to speak about the future.
0: Nigan, what a beautiful meaning for your name and to be given that name, uh, by your, your parents and, and, uh, by your community that, uh, they could tell from a very young age, obviously, that you were going to be that spokesperson for the community or one of the spokespersons for your Indigenous community. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, I was reading up on you and and I was thinking about my past. You know, I, I knew that you were from the University of Winnipeg. And, and of course, like I said, my both my parents were from there. And when I was reading that you were from up from the Selkirk area, I realized that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, Uh, worked for Safeways, and he was sent from Winnipeg up to Selkirk, uh, probably in the, I'm going to say the 1930s, to go and run the store there. And I was just thinking that of the potential connection between, you know, your grandparents and my grandparents, probably your great-grandparents. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I I had no idea. And I had no idea that until, you know, into adulthood, how Indigenous peoples were sent away from their homes. And, uh, you know, it's it's shocking. And uh, I'm so appreciative of you and others that are making sure that the young children in our country don't, you know, grow up with a full history and an accurate history as opposed to the inaccurate history that we were taught.
1: Yeah, it's funny you're describing it. I mean, when you grow up in Selkirk, you know every single inch of the town. <laughs> exactly. And when you're describing the Safeway, you're talking about the old location of Safeway, which would have been just off of Selkirk Avenue, uh, just near where um, it used to be. There's a husky station there. There's most famously Chuck the Channel catfish. <laughs> so it's about four or five streets off of Selkirk Avenue. Selkirk Avenue is the border of our former lands. And so that Safeway would have been Literally, probably 400 meters from inside of what our former homelands were. And um, yeah, that that I remember that Safeway very well. In fact, my um, stepfather, my mother, uh, who's a French woman from Selkirk, uh, she married an Icelander who ended up working uh, at that Safeway in the final days of it before it moved over to the other location where it is now on Manitoba Avenue
0: amazing nigan uh, it's it's incredible realizing that there are you know those connections somewhere back in our history and uh, you know our families had very different lives because of the you know their origins and uh, i'm happy to know that uh, you and others are helping us to uh, to make sure that we know that history let's move on and talk about truth and reconciliation and of course you know i'm i'm certainly hopeful that the canadian educators that are listening to this podcast are are well aware of it but you know we have listeners from the united states and and really from around the world can you highlight a little bit why was the truth and reconciliation commission a real turning point for indigenous and non-indigenous communities in
1: 1990 uh, i mentioned those two incidents those two things that happened one was the resistance at oka and then The second was Elijah Harper's no to the Meech Lake Accord, which was the attempt by the Canadian government to remake Canada's constitution but leave out Indigenous peoples, which is why he said no. About a year later, Phil Fontaine, who at that time was the the Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, he would later go on to be the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, which is the largest chiefs organization in Canada, representing 630 different chiefs across Canada in relation to the federal government. He came on the TV here in Manitoba on, on, an ep, on a show called CBC Manitoba. I think it was called 24 Hours at the time. And he gave a very special interview, and it was uh, a really groundbreaking interview. It was that he shared that he had been sexually abused in residential schools. It was the very first time that anyone had ever talked about sexual abuse or abuse in residential schools. What uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of Indigenous children had been removed from their families and communities and put into these institutions run by the churches and paid for by the federal government, starting in the early 19th century and going all the way till 1996. So for almost 100 years, there was state-run institutions designed for Indigenous children, and it was intended to Christianize them, it was intended to uh, force them into different foreign ways, turn them into capitalists, for example, turn them into uh, farm workers, turn them into sewers for white homes.
0: And to take, and I'm putting quotation marks, to take the Indian out of them. I, and I'm saying that because that was a piece in the language that was used, Right.
1: Yeah, guy called um Duncan Campbell Scott Sir Johnny MacDonald was the Prime Minister at the time, but the Indian Affairs Minister was uh, Duncan Campbell Scott. And he—that's what that was his vision, was to remove the Indian in the child. And so uh, those institutions were incredibly abusive and incredibly violent. And of course, many children died in them, as we're discovering now from the unmarked graves that are, are residential school sites across Canada. But um, Phil Fontaine came on the news and said, I had been sexually abused by priests up in the Fort Alexander School. At Fort Alexander School, both of my great-grandparents attended. Now, throughout, as Phil talked about in that interview, but also as every residential school survivor in their family knows, that the violence didn't just happen at the schools, it also came home with the children. And the children who didn't learn how to parent, who learned violence while growing up, who learned how to cope with that following the schools through drugs and alcohol and addiction, brought a lot of that violence home and they brought a lot of that abuse home. Sometimes sexual abuse, sometimes physical abuse, sometimes just neglect. Sometimes the the crazy experience anyone has about being a parent, if you have no templates for being a parent yourself, you have a very difficult time being a parent. And so what happened throughout the 1990s started with Phil Fontaine's uh, disclosure on CBC Manitoba about his sexual abuse ended up in being a huge tidal wave of support amongst residential school survivors who began to talk about their own abuse and began to talk about their own experiences at residential schools and talking about their own experiences being removed from their parents removed from the land suffering tremendous anxiety and mental health challenges as a result of going to these institutions and eventually what happened was is they got together and they sued the churches and they sued the federal government and that took a very long period of time starting in the 1990s till finally in 2000 and Six, I believe, the residential school settlement agreement was founded, and part of that was to get an apology from the prime minister, which happened in two thousand and eight. But then following that, the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a national inquiry into the issue of residential schools. What led them to become what they were? What happened there? And then, most importantly, what is the path forward for the country in the future following the legacies that they created? Because you can see the legacies of those things in everything from the child welfare system to the justice system to the healthcare system. There's a reason why, for instance, most indigenous peoples have diabetes. There's a reason that most indigenous young men end up in prison before, instead of university. There's a reason that we have murder, missing indigenous women and girls in this country because of residential schools, because of all those things that Canada paid for and the church perpetrated. And so the residential school system was studied uh, as a result of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from 2009 to about 2016. And my father was the head of that commission. And he, alongside two other commissioners, uh, heard all of the stories of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, some of them who worked at the schools, and then uh, after compiling all that information, set up a commission uh uh, that created the 94 calls to action which was a path forward for this country to be able to come out of the legacies of residential schools but move towards reconciliation between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples as a result and uh, the template of that report was based on the declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples the united nations one and then you know some really radical suggestions like um we should have Indigenous peoples have in charge of their own child welfare systems, having uh, Indigenous court systems, having ways that Indigenous peoples can be involved with businesses in this country. Indigenous peoples can be involved in media, um, tons of different things, you know, even demanding a Pope's apology, which, as you can see, occurred as a result of the work of the Truth Reconciliation Commission and will occur later this summer when the Pope visits this country. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the most important inquiry in this country's history, and it has led to other things like the Murder, Missing, and Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, and uh, many of the other changes that we're seeing now implemented. For instance, um, uh, the downloading of child welfare onto First Nations from the federal government, or the new Indigenous Languages Act, or the thousands and thousands of other issues and programs that you know everyday Canadians are taking upon in their lives and their professional lives and their personal lives, from the living room to the boardroom, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the most impactual commission in Canada's history.
0: Miguel, I can't agree with you more. And, you know, from the Indigenous perspective, you know, there were over 6,000 survivors that gave statements to that commission. And I'm sure that's just a small fraction because, of course, we know that many of the children never came back from residential schools and all sorts of them wouldn't be in a place where they would, uh, if they were still here, feel comfortable coming forward. But there were were 6,000 statements. And I think from a non-Indigenous perspective, I think just the learnings that this had gone on and it had gone on so long. This wasn't something that happened 50 years ago. This was something, residential schools were in place until 1996. And it is shocking. And, you know, I I, I certainly can't speak as an Indigenous person, but I can speak as a mom. And I can't imagine having uh, either of my children taken away from me when they were five years old. And, um, you know, I, I think just that learning really opened the eyes of non-Indigenous Canadians to really start to rethink, you know, who are we as a country?
1: Yeah, and of course, this is not to mention that, you know, in some communities like the North – there's models still based on the residential school model, which is, you know, church run institutions where children are taken away from their communities. Now you choose to go, but, you know, is there really a choice when there's no school in your community and you have to be sent to a religious run institution 200 miles away on another, on another island? And so one of the gatherings was in the north and the, findings of the trc was that there are still models or residue of the residential school system in the north still happening and the other thing that the the truth and reconciliation commission only studied the issue of 155 what we call boarding schools and there were thousands of other schools that were industrial schools day schools maybe not thousands excuse me there's over a thousand day schools and industrial schools, which then results, you know, people often say, oh, there was 150,000 residential school attendees over the span of 100 years. Well, that doesn't account for the fact that there were tens of thousands more day schools, industrial schools, and the number is probably closer to half a million to a million attendees in those structures where there was abuse in day schools, there was violence in those places, and there was also diseases, uh, epidemics, and some cases, violence and murder in these residential schools or day schools. And uh, that issue is certainly not over for Canada, and the day school settlement is still taking place for many, many uh, survivors.
0: I had the privilege, Nigan, of I was the Director of Education Superintendent in, in Ottawa the Ottawa Public Schools at the time when your father completed and delivered the final report on the Truth and, and Reconciliation Commission. And I was in the audience and I, I spoke at the beginning because, of course, you know, my school district was in Ottawa and that's where the uh, the report was being released. And it was very hard to speak because the emotion was so high in the room And your father did such a wonderful job. And and the thing that really hit me, he talked about education being the way forward. And I had taught, I had been a principal for one year at a a small school in Thunder Bay, Ontario, where there was a, a large Indigenous population. It was one of the best learning experiences I had throughout my career. And as your father was speaking, I just thought, we just, all of us have such an incredible responsibility to make sure that we uh, don't stop just with the truth, which was uh, certainly big learning for many of us, but really move forward progressively with the the act of, of reconciliation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's evident in the 94 calls to action that there's, you know, 42 in the first section, which is called legacy those institutions that have been created from the violent relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. But I mean, there are 52 more calls and many different more sections in the section called reconciliation. My father says that the path to truth is hard, but the path to reconciliation will be much harder because it will involve us creating things we've never created before. It will be involving us being creative in ways we've never been creative before. And it will involve more commitment than we've ever had before. More commitment because we will experience the most amount of obstacles. And if you want to see what those look like, uh, look to the ways in which some Canadians still deny the violence that happened in the schools and say things like, show me children's bodies, and, which is macabre and you would never say to any other human being unless they were Indigenous. Or look at the ways government members are still refusing to take care of boil water advisories. You know, you can find hundreds of billions of dollars on a weekend if there's a pandemic, but apparently you can't find several billion dollars to fix a boil water advisory because it's just the Indians, right? Or just look at the fact that it's we still don't have Indigenous peoples in Parliament making decisions alongside Canadians, Uh, We have Indigenous peoples who are part of Canadian political parties, but they don't represent Indigenous peoples. And so as a result, Indigenous peoples are never at the discussion tables or decision tables until well after decisions are made, well after pipelines and other projects are planned, and well after the fact so that they're posited as the problem. All the time. They're posited as sort of obstacle to Canada's future, where simply Indigenous peoples want to be involved in the decision making of the country and should be because we are the founders, we are the original peoples, and we have a legal obligation to Canada just as it has a legal obligation to us.
0: Well, we have uh, a lot of work to do, and um, uh, thankfully, there's uh, uh, people that uh, are willing to help us make sure that we get to the right place and that we, we do that together. Let's let's turn towards education. Certainly, amongst those 94 calls to action, there were a number that were very connected to education, and one of the things that I think you know, kind of moving away from the the truth and reconciliation piece, but in the last decade or so, education systems have Put a lot more emphasis on well-being and we know from the research that there's a strong connection between well-being and learning children that are well and in a good place healthy physically and mentally are better able to learn children that are learning well that has a positive impact on their physical and mental health and, and well-being and you know there's an, there's an irony is that you know indigenous ways of thinking and knowing, the Indigenous peoples always had those things linked together. Tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, what is it meant by Indigenous ways of thinking and knowing?
1: Well, about half of the calls to action have to do with education. So there's 94, about half of them in one way direct or not has to do with education, training people, bringing awareness to those people within the workplace, but then also giving them ways actionable items, whether they be in a corporate environment, a public environment, or whether they be in a child welfare office in a uh, hospital in a lawyer's office. And so there are some really direct calls like 6 through 12 or or 62 through 65 but there are also really open ways that we can think about education and so trauma is the number one obstacle to a healthy education for any child. Every child experiences trauma. There is no child that doesn't have some element of trauma as a result and that trauma might be maybe around their identity, their sexual identity, maybe it's around their, you know, feelings of isolation or marginalization. But Indigenous children have a specific type of trauma. It it is to be in a country in which you are told every day that you don't matter, your communities don't matter, your culture and your knowledge doesn't matter. And that still lives in every element of Canada. We live in cities, in provinces, in a country in which Indigenous laws don't have any place. They don't fit. They don't. Uh, uh, only recently do we have laws that are passed by the federal government, which says, "Oh, well, maybe we can come into concert with Indigenous rights." Uh, that's Bill C15, and that's only passed last year. We live in a country in which Indigenous lands—about 99% of Canada—is stolen. And that means that lands have not been adequately distributed between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Non-Indigenous peoples have stolen almost at all. And this is not a condemnation on your neighbour. This is a realisation that you have inherited a, a country that has been built off of theft. And that, what are you going to do about it now? For Indigenous children, upon the realisation of this trauma, it is the awareness that you have been a part of something in which you didn't have a choice but that you are inheriting most oftentimes the violence from and that violence could be in a textbook it could be in a textbook that's saying things like here's 450 pages of european amazingness but here's two pages of indigenous peoples and they're always framed as the problems or the obstacles or they have to be defeated like louis Riel and gabriel dumont for canada to truly be the free to place of so-called freedom that it purports to be. Or it could be the fact that for Indigenous children, there's not a lot of positive images on posters or on the intercom. Uh, They don't hear Indigenous languages. They don't see a place, they don't see Indigenous teachers. They don't see any Indigenous peoples in power in their building. And so what they get is they get the impression that Indigenous peoples don't matter at every step of their life. And that's traumatic. That's hard. Uh, It's hard to be in a world in which you are told frequently that you don't matter. And so... Never mind the other issues that I spoke about before, the legacies in our community from residential schools, but we don't need to have drug addiction and alcoholism and suicide epidemics to experience trauma. We can experience trauma from a whole host of things, looking on the TV and seeing yet another decision by the Prime Minister that's going to impact all of us, and that Indigenous peoples have never been considered or included in that decision. And so you'll hear that trauma. And here's what that trauma sounds like for teachers. I don't know what community I come from. I don't know my traditional name. I don't know uh, what clan I am. I don't speak my language. Those are just a few different windows into what Indigenous trauma looks like. Uh, Never mind the, oh, we live on stolen land. Oh, we have never learned about Indigenous heroes in school oh, we've never spoken or used any Indigenous languages, even though the very city that we live in is an Indigenous word. So teachers have to be aware that to be an Indigenous student, you are experiencing specific targeted trauma that leads to feelings of shame and embarrassment and challenges that non-Indigenous people just don't face, and they don't experience that trauma. And that means that for every Indigenous child, there's going to be extra obstacles that uh, wasn't their choice, but is a part of the classroom, is a part of the hallways, is a part of the office and the library, and even the sports teams and the bands. You know, this is why changing racist logos of sports matters. This is why looking at our textbooks matters. This is why it is so crucial that in every school in this country, there must be a proportional amount of Indigenous teachers in every building. We don't, we're do not we not at the critical mass yet where we have the amount of qualified people just yet, but we must have in every single school in this country Indigenous teachers, at minimum to the same percentage that there are Indigenous peoples in that community. So in Manitoba, that means 20% of all teachers in every school should be Indigenous, period. And then we can start talking about reconciliation. Then we can have a conversation over what that looks like till we can realize the truth, which is that kids do not see success stories of Indigenous peoples in schools. How do we ever expect them to succeed? We certainly have lots of work to do, that's for sure. And so, you know, that's just a few different ways. But, you know, I see non-Indigenous teachers doing amazing things every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky enough in that I get to see the most remarkable and progressive community in this country, which is Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Northwestern Ontario, places that are bravely fighting to make sure that every child learns about Indigenous peoples. We have an Indigenous credit requirement at the universities uh, almost across the board here in these three provinces. Perfect. See remarkable non-Indigenous educators, you know, taking Indigenous languages classes, learning about residential schools, bringing those teachings of Indigenous math and science and health and physical education and bringing those into schools. You know, my daughter, When she did grade seven and grade eight, she did a mandatory class that all school students did on truth and reconciliation. And they focused on truth in grade seven and reconciliation in grade eight. And what an innovative, brilliant system that they had in which all kids, all young people, all young Canadians, indigenous and non-indigenous peoples learned about the importance of reconciliation and then did projects together to enact that within the community. But, you know, Every time you take a step forward in this country, you seem to take a step backwards because when a new principal came in, what was the first thing you think he cut? What was the first thing when he said, nah, that's a waste of money? It was reconciliation class. It was that truth and reconciliation class. He always said, oh, that's not math. Oh, that's not the important stuff. And so every time we take a step forward, we seem to take a step backwards. And that's why reconciliation can feel so hard because it will involve everyone all the individuals, and particularly some of the most inept people in this country, the people who have been taught the least about reconciliation, unfortunately, those are some of the people in the power positions. Because you can still get to a point of power in this place, in this country, and be completely ignorant, and be embodying those same principles that Canada has uh, lived in the past of Indigenous marginalization and forgetting about or just, you know, ignoring Indigenous rights, you can still get to a power position in this country. And as a result, we have to wait for this country to catch up or grow up and train every single Indigenous person and non-Indigenous person how to work together in a meaningful way. We're a far ways off from that, but hopefully we're taking a step forward every day, you know, from podcasts like this or from, you know, everyday work in universities and newspapers and so on.
0: For sure, Nagan, and your dad was absolutely right. Education will be the way forward. And, you know, I'm sorry, your, your daughter's uh, program was cancelled. But, you know, I've seen lots of evidence in school districts of those kinds of things where, you know, in the district that I was in, for example, we determined that in grade 11, the entire grade 11 English course would all be based on Indigenous writers, Aboriginal writers. And that was a decade ago. It was It was a bold move at the time, but it was the right move. And it meant that, you know, instead of it being, there was always, a, you know, a, a Native uh, literature, a Native studies course, but, you know, a very tiny percentage of, of children took that. And we knew that we had to do better. And uh, it came out in part from the, you know, the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. So, you know, those calls to action, I think they are being listened to. We've got a long way to go, but it's comforting to know that at least there's some things that are starting to happen. We're seeing some evidence of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, English and social studies tends to be a place that schools start. I think those are really problematic places for Indigenous knowledge to exist because they don't tend to exist very well in those locations. The way social studies looks at Indigenous peoples is most oftentimes a problem and some sort of problem to be solved. Or in English classes, we focus specifically on conflict and trauma. And it's not that those aren't good places. I'm an English teacher. I have a PhD in English. So certainly I think that there's a value in studying literature. But the real place where Indigenous knowledge resides is in science and math, because science and math is how we live as people. It is how we feed ourselves. It is how we enact our lives. It's how we do ceremonies through science and math. When we're singing our songs about the bears, we're really talking about biology we're talking about the ways that bears dance and and live and raise their children and and feed themselves and all of that is lives within our ceremonies and our songs so i always say that indigenous science and math are what we are you can never teach what we are not when you're teaching indigenous science and math Many times when you're teaching social studies in English, you're often teaching what we are not. You're teaching residential schools or violent policies or talking about what Indigenous peoples are struggling to do against pipelines, for example. Like those are important stories, but they don't have the generative method that science or math or, you know, even health or physical education. I actually think Indigenous knowledge really resides well in those other subjects, much more so than social studies in English.
0: It's interesting what you say, Nigga, and I, when I was doing a little bit of research before doing this podcast, I, I looked up on, because I was, you know, Indigenous ways of thinking, Indigenous ways of knowing, and I found the, the First People's Principles of Learning, which was established by the First Nations Education Steering Committee and the British Columbia Ministry of Education. And, you know, I'll, I'll read out a couple of the statements. First of all, it talks about learning supporting the well-being of self the family, the community, the land, the spirits, and the ancestors. And you can see the indigenous piece there, which, you know, we would in non-indigenous, I think we would talk about self and family and community, but the land, probably not. The spirits, probably not. Ancestors, probably not. You know, you can just see the influence. And, you know, what we what we think of what we have experienced with um you know, our, our relationship with the environment. Indigenous peoples have the looking after the land as a founding principle. That's just a starting point. And it's interesting that non-Indigenous peoples are coming back to that. You were doing that far ahead of us and, and at the very basis of of the way that you think and know.
1: Well, it's because the land and the water are not separate to us. We are the land. We are the water. And guess who are the people who also remind us of that? It's scientists, it's botanists, it's those, you know, doctors, it's people in health who say, you know, you're 70% water. (laughs) And we're like, yeah, for Indigenous peoples, we're like, yeah, we sing about that in the lodge.
0: Yeah, it's right there, right? The other thing that I was struck by, Nagan, in reading through these, um, I do a lot of work in in social-emotional learning. And again, you know, it's totally reflected this in these first people's principles of learning. They talk about learning being holistic, reflexive, reflective, experiential, and relational. And again, you know, those are, you know, very much the elements of what we now call social-emotional learning. And, and that was a part of Indigenous ways of knowing and being a long time ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way that we learn in schools is just so one-dimensional. And we sit these kids in desks and we say, okay, write this out, think about this, and regurgitate it back to us in an essay or something like that. And I'm not saying that essays aren't useful. I'm not saying that writing isn't an action, but we would just never do those kinds of things in the lodge. We would say, okay, let's talk about picking berries. Let's talk about growing medicines. Let's talk about. Our relationship with the bears or the fish or the birds or but then now we have to do something with that information so what we do is we don't just sit and listen and talk we actually get up and we dance and we sing and we say okay so now we have to enact a a different way to practice pedagogy And so that's why dancing, we have to dance the information. We can't just speak about it. We now have to sing it. We have to use all of our body to sing that information, to then dance it, and then also practice that knowledge by then going out and doing it. Like, like it seems silly and totally counterproductive to talk about picking medicines and then never pick any medicines. But yet that's what we do in schools all the time. It's completely absurd. It's like, it's like we, we expect kids to only think about things and then never feel them or never touch them or never feel the spirit of them. The spirit is the most important element of creation because we're not talking about religion. I'm not talking about like, there, we don't have a word for religion in our languages. We have a word for spirituality, which is like the spirit of community, the spirit of laughter, the spirit of love. You can only experience the spirit of love Uh, with water, for example, by touching water, by tasting water, by smelling water, by immersing yourself in that water and you feel the love. And that's the spirit of love. That's what uh, Gijay Manado, we would say, the great spirit or, or the great essence wants you to experience, wants you to go and enact that love as a part of your everyday life. You would never then go forth and pass laws that deny or erase or destroy waterways because you have the spirit of love inside of you the spirit of that water that's gifted you that love you would never go off and destroy water from a oil pipeline or a hydroelectric dam or go and just like you'd be destroying yourself because you'd be like oh i am water i'm 70 percent water i'm really killing myself here also i can have a little bit of uh, electricity in my home or a faster running car or a few extra pennies in my pocket, but you can't eat pennies. I realize it's a dated reference because there's no pennies anymore, I just realized.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll let that one go. Nigan, let's, as we get to the end of this podcast, let's talk about next steps. First of all, have you seen any progress? You know, are, are Indigenous students finding their voices... Are Indigenous ways of thinking and knowing valued in our education systems? Are you starting to see signs of that? And can you give an example if you can think of any?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have 2,500 Indigenous students at the University of Manitoba today enrolled. That is the largest, beside the University of Saskatchewan, which also has another 2,500 or so. Um, And if you add up, you know, Lakehead University, Brandon University, University of Winnipeg, we're now getting close to 10,000 students. That's 10,000 Indigenous doctors, lawyers, nurses, teachers. Another word for that's called the future. That's the future of Canada. And working beside them, working with them, are non-Indigenous peoples who, for the first time in their life, working with Indigenous knowledge practitioners who are in different ways still maybe learning about their own culture and, and their own place, but then, you know, know far more, are able to teach or able to learn alongside other Canadians, who are then creating inclusive workplaces and workplaces that adequately reflect the population of Manitoba. And that means that every single person in Manitoba, Northwestern Ontario, and Saskatchewan today, are living with, working beside, or working with an Indigenous person. Or they're maybe married to one. And that means that you have to be competent to work with Indigenous peoples. If you're not competent, I do not want you working in Manitoba, period. I don't want you working in Saskatchewan. I don't want you working in Northwestern Ontario. Go someplace else. Unfortunately, they will be welcomed in other places in the country because, frankly, as you go east of northwestern Ontario, you get less and less competency on Indigenous peoples in the mainstream. As you go west of Manitoba, you get competency in some areas, like I would say that in BC, the issues of Indigenous health have well surpassed anything that you can see anywhere in this country. In Alberta, you'll see areas of Indigenous business that have far surpassed anywhere else in this country. But On a wholesale, I see such tremendous change happening on the prairies here. I see it happening every day. I see community-run organizations that are involving Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples uh, fighting radically for Indigenous rights, recognizing that most of the water here in Winnipeg. I was at an event this morning in a Rotary Club. And the mayor of Winnipeg got up and he talked about Shoal Lake 40, the fact that in Shoal Lake First Nation provides Winnipeg with all of its water. And this was a mayor talking about this. And this is a mayor who is Métis, who is working very hard to bring education to everyday Winnipeggers from a very mainstream office, from a a mayor's office. I see progress happening all the time. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And I see it in my workplace at the University of Manitoba. I see it in all the different places that I work. The fact that I have been hired or contracted by all these different organizations tells you that they are committed to the calls to action. They want to evoke change, and they're willing to put resources behind it unfortunately, I don't see that in some of the major mainstream urban centers of this country. I do not see that in Toronto. I do not see that in Montreal. I don't see that very much in Ottawa. I don't see that very much in Vancouver. And what that means is, is that it may not be those places that are leading the country in this issue. It may be that places like small urban centers like Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatoon, Thunder Bay, Places that have been historically classified as problem areas or areas of violence, or if you ever Google Winnipeg or Thunder Bay or Regina, you'll get a bunch of stories about racism. But the fact is that there are more solutions that happen in those cities than happen in Toronto in a week.
0: I agree. And uh, I was born and raised in Thunder Bay and uh, have certainly seen the evolution. And, and you're right, they're working very hard to make it a, a better place. And the one thing I'll say, uh, some good news to share with you, Nigan, is that um, I'm the chair of the board for the University of Ottawa. And we have just recently named our new chancellor and our new chancellor is Claudette Kamanda
1: that's wonderful.
0: He is Indigenous and uh, we're thrilled. And uh, the, the president of the university is Francophone. He's French background. Uh, I, of course, am, am Anglophone and uh, Claudette is Indigenous. So we think it's really symbolic that uh, at the head of a university with 47,000 students that the three nations are there.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I'm glad that that uh, University of Ottawa took that step. And, uh, you know, I hope that begins a conversation on the very important issues Claudette brings up around the Algonquin land claim, because all all of Ottawa is sitting on stolen land. And I hope that that conversation, uh, which I know is not easy to talk about, it's hard to use the word stolen and Theft and genocide when we have conversations. And, you know, a lot of people call me angry when I use those terms. I don't know if you're hearing, but I'm not talking in an angry tone. I'm talking in a tone that there is no one more dedicated to reconciliation than people like myself or Claudette or those who are engaged in productive, reasonable, calm dialogue on, you know, what can be very difficult things to talk about should show you that there is a level of um, commitment there that is invested in peace that's invested in collaboration and peace and invested in what we might call reconciliation and uh, like I'm very happy that you have me on this podcast because I hope that I reach people who may not have heard me before or heard you know an indigenous person before and uh, the fact that you're dedicating uh, your your time and your commitment is one of our greatest gifts that we can give to each other. As Indigenous peoples, we know that the most important thing to build relationships is gifts. And the biggest gift that you can give to each other is time. There's nothing more valuable than time. And you really know that when someone's passing away, right? And you're losing someone in your life. How much would you pay for one extra hour, one extra dinner, or one extra evening with that person, it it would be infinite, you couldn't even put the amount of money on it. And that's the kind of commitment that indigenous peoples are seeking from non indigenous peoples, to be able to come forward and build a path together into the future.
0: Nigan, I want to, on behalf of the listeners, thank you so much. I have learned incredibly from this time together, and uh, I know the listeners will be feeling the same thing. And uh, a great way to end the episode, we are going to come together and do this work together and uh, make uh, Canada a better place for our students
1: and our children. Well, thanks so much, Jennifer, for your time. And I hope everybody enjoys. If you want to get a hold of me for any reason, uh, I'm available through the University of Manitoba. And my email is available. Just sort of Google me, uh, N I I G A A N, And uh, you can send me an email if you really liked what I had to say. And I'm very happy to be a part of this podcast. So thanks so much for your time. And and, you feel free to Send me any feedback or any comments uh, or, you know, I like, I like comments better than questions because I like to hear what people think and what they reacted to.
0: I'll do better than that, Negan. I, I know I'm going to get requests to hear more from you, so we'll be in touch at a, at a later time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Great. Yeah, miigwech. Thanks so much. Miigwech. Thanks to Negan for helping us to learn more about Indigenous ways of thinking and knowing. The process of truth and reconciliation has been an important step in Canadian history. Negan's father led the process and this pathway. Negan and many other Indigenous leaders are carrying this process forward. As we learn more about Indigenous ways, we're better able to serve both the Indigenous and non-Indigenous students in our care. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.